Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This week, we waved goodbye to the 747 and to Brianna Stewart and North Lake Tavern and the band who was playing at the Kraken game. And we're waving hello to a 12-egg omelet, which I could eat if I shared it with my guests. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Bill. Also, Seattle Met Magazine Deputy Editor, Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you again in person. Seattle Times Senior Investigative Reporter, Patrick Malone. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. And you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Let's get at what happened this week. The last 747 freighter ever to be built rolled out of Boeing's Everett plant 53 years after the 747 first took flight in 1969. Chances are you've heard about the plane with a spiral staircase in first class. The plane with the two wide aisles and the three widescreen movies and the eight-foot ceilings and economy. And chances are you've wondered, who's going to get this incredible bird off the ground? Now you know. Will bring you the world's first 747. Yes, Pan American World Airways, where we speak in mid Atlantic accents and you're free to smoke on board, and we're now defunct. Boeing held a farewell ceremony in Everett, and this is a retired 747 worker named Desi Evans who I thought beautifully summed up our mixed emotions. It is kind of like a part of your life is closing down a little bit and you don't like that you know yeah so you're happy and you're sad too patrick uh, did you feel that way this week about the 747 yeah i kind of did you know because boeing's prevalence in the commercial aviation world that the 747 really solidified made it you know a household name and it really made seattle significant on the national scale and on the global scale and defense contracting then which they added you know that sort of added to that so here uh everyone from the assembly workers to engineers made good livings and it occupies a special space in the regional psyche i mean this was the plane that someone could leave their mundane life in Topeka behind, go to the Bahamas, mm. thanks in part to how people spent their workday in Seattle. And that's a source of pride. And really, you know, I think with the retrospective look now, we can see that this came to define Seattle in the generation that preceded it as a thriving tech hub. Yeah, my father worked at Boeing. My sister worked at Boeing. My sister's husband worked at Boeing. Uh, you know, mo- I lived in Federal Way. P- people I knew that's that's what we did. Are there others uh, here with a with a Boeing connection or feeling? You know, I didn't have a Boeing connection other than growing up in the region and it just being a, a something was always there, a Boeing field, um, going to the Museum of Flight and seeing just Boeing everything. Mm. Uh, but I, you know, we were talking a little bit about this plane and whether you would consider it iconic. And to me, one reason this plane was so iconic is that how few people could actually pick out a 747 if they saw it. Maybe a lot of Seattleites, the folks who, who may have worked on it. But it, it was more shorthand for the jet age. It was shorthand for traveling long distance for you know, progression in the technological sphere. And I think for that reason, we're all as a city feeling it because it was a time when Seattle really did just represent this pure leap forward feel. And we have a little, we've gotten to be, have a complicated relationship with Boeing. And we've certainly then in the decades since Boeing was at its peak, had complicated relationships with uh, Microsoft and Amazon and some of the other big companies that have that sort of definitive Seattle personality. But I think one reason we're feeling a little sad is because the 747 was always shorthand for a glamorous long trip. We don't feel that way about the the 737. It's a workhorse. It's a, you know, it's a very important plane in today's aviation. It is. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and buses are very important and probably get more people to where they are than uh, many other forms of transportation. But there was a romance bus- behind the 747, and I think we're maybe a little too savvy to buy it, all of that marketing right now about a, a form of transportation. Maybe not. Maybe we're going to get this way about the Hyperloop train and right. dress up for it. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I, I am sad about it. I'm significantly sad about it. The 747 was, I mean, remember, Boeing is Seattle's original tech company. And Boeing expertise in engineering and the way it drew the top talent, engineering talent from all over the planet in the late 1960s. I mean, you went to Boeing. If you stopped into a Boeing factory or a Boeing engineering center in 1970, you would see people from like 15, 16 different countries because they were scouring that this put other people's uh, engineering, aviation engineering back a few decades because Boeing was so voracious and the talent it acquired. But it also became a lead, like you said earlier, Patrick, about uh, defense contracting and the SST and all the famous history that goes with Boeing. Boeing made it as the number one aircraft manufacturer, largely on the contrails of the 747. And and personally, I'm I'm sort of nostalgic about it because I actually flew on one of those two original uh, Pan Am 747s. I went to – my mom is Panamanian and when I was a little kid, we actually – it was the Yankee Clipper 1 and 2, the first two Pan Am 747s in service, first two 747 commercial airliners in service mm-hmm. uh, as strictly for passengers. And we flew to Panama City, which was I think – San Francisco to Los Angeles to Guatemala City to yeah. – and, and here's the crazy thing. They put my sisters and I – my sister Sally was nine. I was seven. My little sister Nancy was six. On the flight by ourselves, <laughs> 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 yeah. which I know now is probably a CPS call. But at the time, <laughs> the, the flight attendants – and it was mad. I got wings. They escorted me because I was a little kid up into the cockpit. Sure. And it looked like – I felt like I was an astronaut. It was – remarkable. Back before when flying was still a little bit glamorous, that pivoted it, right? Because it also, the reason we could afford to go was because the 747 could hold so many people and the tickets got less expensive. I mean, it made flying democratic in a lot of ways. And I don't know, for me personally, I understand why it's moving away and it's technologically, but I'm a little sad about its departure. Even though also air flight, if we're talking about icons, uh, it is an icon of environmental, atmospheric... A bygone era. Ruin. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's not. And it's also a four-engine aircraft. There's a variety. If you talk to Boeing engineers, there's a lot of things about the 747 that made it remarkable that now does not anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, before we leave... By the way, the 747's not leaving us yet because it's going to fly around for a long time. But they rolled off the last new one in Everett. They are also... um, going to be building some of the 737s in Everett, right? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that a, is that a win for Everett and a loss for Renton or yes. not? Yeah? yeah, yeah. I mean, Renton would have liked to have had that additional capacity, and it had that additional capacity. It could be building these. Remember, pre-pandemic, they were rolling, how many were they rolling, 40-something a month off the assembly line down there? You could see them fuselages moving through Seattle every day of the week. That changed during the pandemic, and certainly it changed during the grounding of the 737. Then they, but the but but the Everett plant has been underutilized. It's lost the 767 to South Carolina. I mean, 787 to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The 747 is now done. It has extra capacity, although they're going to have to retool a lot of things because the extra capacity is for bigger jets than the 737. I think Renton would have liked it, and there's always been this rumor among top Boeing engineers that there's been a long desire to consolidate a lot of stuff in Everett and maybe move it away from Renton and do something else with the Renton facility, maybe turn it into solely an engineering facility. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I, if I were working at Renton, I'd be a little bit, you know, a little bothered that that additional <laughs> capacity wasn't brought to Renton. Well, before we leave the plane, uh, I'm, I'm doing a series right now about word inflation, how we, we devalue our language when we keep grabbing the most dramatic word we can think of. This week, the words iconic and legendary were applied to the 747, Beth's Cafe, North Lake Tavern, Sue Bird, Soundgarden, Tom Brady, Alec Baldwin, Ozzy Osbourne, and Harrison Ford, just that I could find just this week. So I want to check in before we grab a word. Is the 747, when we say iconic, which we say a lot, is the 747, does it count? Does it qualify for actually iconic? Well, again, as, as I said, it, it represents more than the actual physical plane. It represents a time. It represents a field of aviation. I Yes, yes. it is. I mean, I think it, it qualifies. Bill, it literally does represent <laughs> that because I'm sure you love that word, too. Uh, nice, nice. Um, uh, does everything. I mean, it, it really depends on your point of view. For our 
people who follow women's basketball, uh, Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart are absolutely legendary. Uh, I think it devalues them and the sport to say that because some people haven't heard of them, that oh, they aren't. No, I would say the same for Russell Wilson mm-hmm. and Ken Griffey. I mean, mm-hmm. when we say that an athlete is legendary, a legend, I think a legend needs to be either fiction or it seems like fiction. It's just inconceivable to you. Like, you can't imagine if you, if you didn't see it. Well, Ken Griffey Jr., I saw Russell Wilson and Sue Bird and Ken Griffey. Mm-hmm. They were very good at what they did. There's nothing really inconceivable about it. They just... Scored points. But sports often. is an arena that's meant to build up fun legends within it. So I think it's it's a different scale than you might use in any other arena. And I think we we can't ignore that hyperbolic language is iconic in this country. <laughs> is it? What yeah, does it I, represent? I think that just like as a print journalist, you know, we're always looking for the right word. What is the right verb here? What accurately describes this? What is the most specific? And it's lazy that we get away from that in casual conversation. Sorry to be a word nerd on Maine, but, you know, I think that there are times in conversation where I'm just stopped in my tracks and thinking I would never use that word if I had to stand behind it in print for 50 years or <laughs> hard or scrabble being one of those words. You never, <laughs> yeah. No one ever has actually said, right. right? They only put it in. I would also say, though, that we run the risk of taking a perfectly good word. Like the word hero does, is meaningless at this point, right? Yeah. The word genius is meaningless at this point. And Tragedy. I think, Tragedy is a wonderful word, but all, now it's just something sad. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And I, it, it's too bad because it seems like when you have – and I'm a, sort of a word nerd as well as everyone else here. I like it when you have a super precise word that really captures what you want. But when it gets completely – and headline writers – sorry, headline writers out there. Headline writers are the worst because they want something that's going to grab you into the story. But frequently when they use the word slams or – you read the story and Mike someone – Mike Lewis blasts headline blasts. writers. And you read the story and it's like very mild criticism, friendly criticism of something, yes. right? Well, especially in – we were just being encouraged to read headlines more and more. I mean on a print newspaper, the story is right there. So yes. it's – it's harder to avoid. People certainly did it. There were inflammatory headlines uh, in print, but social media and other ways we're consuming news have definitely encouraged us to take just the most incendiary headline and ignore the reporting behind it. Last one, Beth's Cafe. Iconic, legendary, or just popular? I'd say neither. And I liked Beth's. And I used to go there regularly after playing basketball on sure. Saturdays. But um, I mean, that omelet? That's something. And I know it ended up sort of getting a bit of um, cable television fame. Yes. Man, meet, man meets food. What's, what's this the, is the 12-egg omelet yeah, that you try can't to eat, the, eat. That you can't eat by yourself. Yeah. I'm glad that it's back open. You never yeah. hear that story about a place that's been around for mm-hmm. a while. But I don't know that I would go down the legendary or iconic okay. road. Just glad to have it back. Yeah. All right, um, let's move on with the news. Uh, I want to turn to the listener a moment and just say, so as I say, I'm doing this series, and I want to know what you, listener, what words you notice along these lines. A situation can't just be concerning anymore. You have to say it's apocalyptic and dystopian, and people who disagree (laughs) with you are gaslighting you, and politicians slam each other, and police officers leaving is an exodus, and Seattle is dying, and your colleagues are all amazing. What an awesome team, nine exclamation marks. So, And sometimes grabbing a special word is offensive because you don't know or care what you're saying, and somebody actually does. So I want to hear from you. Do you have any examples of words or phrases you think we're using uh, or, that are or we're devaluing. Here's my email address, and you can tell me. And I and I'll do. I've already done some interviews about this. I went to a UW uh, biblical history professor about the word Exodus. Nice. So I'm going to keep churning them out. If you're interested, uh, so just email me your ideas. Bradkey at kuow.org. That's simple. Bradkey at kuow.org. Moving on to the news of the week again. This week in affordable housing, there is action at the state and the city level. Mike, Seattle voters have their ballots for the February 14th election, including, it's just one issue, a social housing initiative. Will you tell us what's that proposal? Yeah, this is to make a public corporation that is going to either, I think, initially potentially buy buildings and then at some point down the road uh develop buildings that are going to be for that, uh, in, to some degree, lower income, but also for that missing middle that everyone likes to talk about now in affordable housing, people who are a family of four making 120 k a year, which in 
the Bay Area as well as here, is not much money, that it's going to open up housing for these folks who are not getting caught. The housing advocates who are who are worried about the, the unhoused, uh, everyone's worried about the unhoused, but in particular, that is their focus. They would say that that should be solved before we get into the, the missing middle, before we get into the lower income housing. So that's what Seattle voters are going to. I am not... I've read a lot about this, and I'm still not entirely certain I understand the mechanism by which this public corporation is going to be able to do what it is purported to want to do in this in this ballot measure. But I'm curious about it. I, certainly, it's hard to deny that there's a need. And I mean, I think one thing, I the same thing I've been trying to read up on this and make sure I understand it. And one thing I'm seeing the proponents saying is this is not about moving one slice of the pie from one population, the unhoused population, to this missing middle. It's about expanding the pie, which is something we all love to say, like, oh, I'm not taking money from this thing. I'm just going to bring more from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do know that it would be less dependent on those federal funds that often go towards the um, addressing the unhoused populations here. I, I do think that there is the argument, though, that one, they're both crucial needs, but one is a little bit more emergent, and that is the lack of housing in Seattle. And I think there are parts of this that really take on practical obstacles that are very specific to people who are seeking to rent in Seattle or anywhere really, such as reliance on references and co-signers and background checks that make it almost an uneven playing field. But as Mike noted, the public developer model is just a little confusing. And I think that the fact that advocates are divided over it really dampens its chances a bit. Yeah, I, I saw in the Seattle Times that it said words to the effect of what this new agency would cost remains unclear. Right. Bingo. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, but um, the idea, you know, people who people who do this for a living are saying, as, well, you, you put it well. It's a, it's a missing middle. They use the Seattle Times used the example of Vienna where the, they said that the mayor says, of Vienna says, you can't say if a person is rich or poor because of their address. It's a mixed income right. uh, public housing there. All right. So, uh, and our reporters are on this and covering it for you at uh, KUOW.org. And that just only needs a simple majority. It's the only measure on the ballot in this uh, February ballot, with the deadline being on the 14th of February. Now, Mike, we might think of Seattle's Biggest cities as the unaffordable ones, but it's uh, it's more than that. Yeah, this is this was one that caught me a little bit off guard. Uh, the city of Winthrop uh, is now dealing with uh, over the mountains, over Met- the mountains, Metow Valley. Have, yeah, Metow Valley. If you've not been there, eastern part of the state, beautiful, sort of the the cradle of cross country skiing and biathlon yeah. uh, in in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, See, that's a Westsiders' with- point of view, right? It's, the, it's a vacation. <laughs> Well, but that's the problem, yes. right? And, and that has been all of that money, the fire hose of money that's been pointed at Seattle for the last 15 years. A lot of folks, especially when remote work became prevalent, bought a place out in, in the Metow Valley, among other places, when they weren't in what, – what do the developers call it? The, or the housing folks call it the three Bs, Boise, Bend, and Billings, right? But uh-huh. you could add now the three uh-huh. Bs and then a W, I guess. The, the property – and I have a friend who lives out there. He said – it's became unaffordable for people for locals because everybody in the way it's happened to Aspen and other places like that. And so now they're actually dealing with their own housing affordability issue and trying to find solutions to actually allow locals who live and work in this area to still afford to live and work in that area. I I mean it's a favorite destination for me and I know I was looking up the other day and plots of land in that area are going for Two, three hundred thousand dollars. That's just the land, undeveloped, no sewage, yep. no utilities, right? and um, and there's a lot of wealth there. And when you compare it to the surrounding Okanagan County, it's a huge discrepancy. And uh, I w- was covering the opening of a new brew pub in Mazama, just north of uh, Winthrop earlier, and a lot of people were talking about, well, we could open up a, a new restaurant, but who's going to staff it? You know, where where are those people going to come from? Right. I think you've seen this uh, in Leavenworth. Uh, that yep. area became very expensive, and you did see a growth in Wenatchee. I think that it's, you know, they've been talking about different things that they could do in Winthrop as far as changing what the official definition of uh, neighborhood character is, which is something people talk about. They don't want. That could be on my list, my word list. (laughs) Neighborhood character. character. Big, big old quotes quotes around that. But then also talking about limiting overnight rentals. There are a lot of empty cabins and houses in that area because it's such a popular vacation destination. It's a conversation that's been happening in a lot of other places. Um, 
they don't have an, uh, a ski area of a like chairlift kind there. So it's maybe a little bit behind the Aspens and the Vales, but it's such a beautiful and amazing destination that I think they're going to they're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Ironically, it almost seems like a uh, sort of a gentrification situation happening in a small place, a lot like what we saw in Washington, D.C. when I was there. And there's a very novel sort of a trust program they've built in southeast Washington, which is, uh, you know, home to a lot of marginalized people. And they've been able to prevent sales from being off the charts and and build brackets around, you know, uh, safety net for people who might be forced to leave, move to Prince George County or whatever. Ways to keep people in their house. There are creative ways to do this. But they they all are very hard to do because they need to move off the entrenched way of doing mm-hmm. things. And uh, I just think it's very interesting. And also I'm impressed with the fact that uh, this has been recognized in Winthrop and that it's actually being addressed in some way mm-hmm. and not just become, you know, uh, elite playground gone wild. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what you have there is what you have also, honestly, in a microcosm in Seattle. You have a situation where the initial wave of wealthy people coming in boosts a lot of business. They're building new brew pubs. They're doing all kinds of stuff like that. And then suddenly the business owners realize, wait a minute. I have people driving 25 miles in the snow to get here because they can't – what I can pay them is not – it does not give them the capacity to live in this town. So it, it really hit that critical mass. Mm-hmm. Plus, remember those neighborhoods with the character? They're historic. <laughs> well, I think I saw in the article we were sharing about this that there is a current limit, I believe, of 30 feet for new development, new buildings, because, you know, as I'm sure that comes into the neighborhood character thing. They don't mm-hmm. want to see high rises, but we, dense housing is how you address some housing shortages. And um, when you have places where that's not allowed, that becomes a problem. Before we take a break, Patrick, we're also addressing density of housing and more uh, on the state level when it comes to affordable housing. We could go, we could talk a long time about this, but you want to you know catch us up on what's what's interesting you this week? Right. Yes, there's a suite of 13 bills in Olympia that are all sort of moving in one direction, which is more building in more places faster. So it's it's aimed at affordable housing. It's got bipartisan support, which always freaks me out, makes me a little bit <laughs> suspicious. So uh you know, it means that they these might likely pass. This suite of legislation might pass, but I'm skeptical as to whether the form that it comes out in is the form it's being presented in as initially introduced bills. You know, the legislative process is a jump ball, and in the amendment or even rulemaking post-passage, it can quickly tilt the scales from an altruistic vision like this to carve-outs for the building industry. And I look at, uh, you know, affordable housing opportunity zones were just the hottest thing five years ago. And it didn't take us long to figure out nationally that they didn't accomplish what everybody told us they were going to. There was not enough affordable housing baked into these, and they became carve-outs for developers. And I think really it's going to take you know, advocates really being on their guard to watch that this isn't a process that's co-opted because we've already seen a certain coziness between the executive branch in the Inslee administration and the building industry. Even at the early days of the pandemic, they were flouting the uh, quarantine protocols and with no consequences. So I think there are a lot of people that want to see this come out as an advantage for renters and for people who are looking for housing. I don't know that that's how it'll ultimately look when it's done. So you're talking about streamlining the process for builders, um, densifying, upzoning, back to allowing missing middle. ADUs. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, additional dwelling unit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so that's that, that's a, a lot to watch the legislative snake digest, and uh, and we'll follow that with your skepticism. Um, okay, so that's uh, that's a bit of what's happened this week, and we're just getting started here on KOW's Week in Review with Patrick Malone from the Seattle Times, Allison Williams, Seattle Met, Mike Lewis at GeekWire. We're live streaming the program at YouTube and Facebook. Search KUOW Public Radio. Let's take a short break and get back to more of this week's news in a moment. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. 
You are listening to KUOW's Week in Review. This week, in trying to cut down on traffic injuries and deaths, Allison Williams with Seattle met a partial ban on the free right turn on red. Will you explain? Well, I know it all. It's going to feel like we're going back to traffic school here when we were getting our learner's permit. Uh-huh. But uh, this would change the ability to do a right turn on red near certain kinds of uh, institutions, schools, libraries, um, senior centers. And it would involve a sign that says no turn on red specifically in those intersections. In in Washington, I believe pretty much right turns on reds are allowed. Uh, but in these places, only when there is it is signed, you'd be able to block the right turn on red. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that uh, – we all know sometimes ourselves or other people who roll up to a right uh, to a red light and go right into the turn without really looking. Mm-hmm. You really have the possibility of hitting pedestrians and cyclists. And you know what this is meant to do is really sort of slow down traffic in these areas that are particularly uh, full of pedestrians and full of cyclists. It really came to my attention because we were talking in our edit meeting earlier this week about how unfamiliar most of us are with traffic rules. And a lot of us haven't really been tested on them since we were 15 years old and quickly memorizing the booklet so we could get our driver's license. And um, I was joking with someone and they said they remember what you should do if you come across a a horse-drawn carriage, but they can't remember what you're supposed to do with a bike. And I just thought that was really funny that, like, you know, what do we encounter more often? If you're downhill, turn the hoofs inward to the right. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, making streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists, I think, is about first changing expectations of drivers of how quickly they can get through an area. And that's really hard to do because, you know, I'll admit it, even as a driver, sometimes I get frustrated when I think I should be able to get through this faster. But we have to change the expectation of the priority there and who has the right of way and things like changing the expectations of how easy and quick it is to drive. And then you can change the behavior of some, you know, rapid turns that can end up hurting people because they're done without giving the right of way. So I am not a fan of changing the law. Uh, and I am a regular cyclist. I cycle a bunch of every week. I'm also on a motor. I'm usually on two wheels, either a bicycle or on a motorcycle most days. And I think that what we're addressing here is abysmal driver training. And this is what I really wish we would do is focus on that and not on the red light. I mean, I don't mind. People come to a stop. They If they can – there is nothing preventing everyone from, from moving through that situation carefully. Nothing. There's nothing that prevents them from doing that. Yet, people don't do it because they get lazy or they have bad driver's training or they don't even know what the laws are. It feels to me like this is one of those things where we're going to crank down. And remember that this actually does allow traffic to continually move through an area and not get backed up, right? So why not still allow it but, in, but require – much higher standards for drivers. You, if you're over 18, you can walk in and pass the test without having gone through driver training. Now, if you know how to do that, you can. You can obviously it takes some advanced knowledge to be able to do that. But our drivers training, if you compare drivers training in the United States to many other places, it's abysmal. And so I how would, would say you that do we, that? Need... we have to keep keep re-upping our license more often or more Absolutely. stringently. Absolutely. And as you get older, maybe it maybe maybe narrow the gap between license renewal. I think people are bad drivers because they're poorly trained as drivers. And even if they were good drivers at the time, it's just the sheer amount of time and the you know, when I got my license in Olympia in the late nineties, yeah, there weren't exactly. many cyclists around. And so even if I did check off the right boxes on the exam, I just wasn't encountering them and dealing with that kind of traffic flow. And I've probably forgotten a lot. And I agree. I think that we need more education. But we also think we need more expectation of other people having the right of way. When's the last time any of you saw someone pulled over for, you know, making an illegal right turn or doing it at a dangerous moment? Well, for any traffic infraction, honestly. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, got, I got pulled over um, at, out on Edgar Martinez. You know, you, you come off the freeway. You have to stop. You can't turn Right. There's, there's, they do block right. the right turn mm-hmm. on red, and I didn't notice that, and they only gave me a warning, but I did get pulled over but you with lived. my children in them. You lived, and not, I lived. not everyone that's being stopped by police lives, right. and, and some of the things that they're pulling them over for are far lesser than you know peeling around a red light uncautiously. I walk my kids to school in a you know one of these environments where there is a propensity for someone to make a right turn very quickly as we're in a crosswalk. And uh, 
I would love just to even see the police there once in a while. If they were parked across the street during these key times, I don't know if they need to change the law. I just think maybe they need to be present and reprioritize a little. And they did the smart move of changing, using the delay for the crosswalk, remember? Mm-hmm. now, Right now you see the, mm-hmm. the crossing allowance and then people can get, and when they're out actually furthering the intersection, oddly enough, they're safer because that way the people who are turning are actually seeing them move out in advance and not they're not coming off the sidewalk. That's true. They're actually thinks. safer if they've gotten in there sooner. They are much safer because as people, as one, someone once uh, said to me, I'm a, as a regular cyclist, and I was bothered, yeah, I was worried about being in the way of someone who was driving, they said, look, if they see you, you've won, <laughs> right? And not winning like being annoying to cars, but you need people to see you so you don't get hit. And I love that change on the, side, on the crosswalk thing. Great idea in the city. I like that. Well, in fact, we are talking at the state level about banning police from you know, shifting here to, to, to stops that might be restricted, banning police for stopping, from stopping people for what they call non-safety-related issues like expired tabs and broken taillights. And, Patrick, you started to get at that. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think that this bill is an acknowledgment that sometimes people die when they're stopped for a traffic infraction, which, you know, certainly doesn't carry the death penalty and should not. And uh, it's probably a good start. It could save lives. But it really doesn't get at the underlying problem that people are dying for minor traffic infractions and sometimes ones that they haven't even committed. And I'll just use the example of a case I'm really familiar with, and that's Manuel Ellis in Tacoma, who was killed by police there in March of 2020. And now three of those officers are charged. Uh, He had 45 police contacts in his life, almost every single one of them was not because someone called 911 or, you know, that police were even summoned to the scene. These started when he was 13. They were predominantly initiated by police, and they ended on the night when he died. And some of the reasons that he was pulled over were mismatched paint on a fender, you know, a cracked windshield, which I think does sort of drift into the safety realm maybe more than some other things, but expired tag, mere suspicion because he was out late with other black men. And, you know, this wouldn't, this bill would not fix some of those sorts of subjecting, subjective over-policing situations. But it is an acknowledgement that, hey, you know, we're seeing tragedies, literal ones, happen, uh, you know, just because of a traffic infraction. And I think that maybe this tells us that we need to be looking at something bigger, but it's maybe a good start. Are there I'm downsides sh- to this? That, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I agree with you uh, completely on the fact that this is – this has been a tool of over-policing at times, right? You know, the, the, the taillight out. But remember, also that has been a problem with the erratic, the very broadly interpreted erratic driving, right? Those sort of things have been used by, not used by good cops, overused by bad ones. I don't think, though, that – and on, as far as expired tabs go, I guess I'm fine if they don't want to pull people. I would like to see that enforced. I mean, if, those money, if that money is supposed to go to roadways and you're using a roadway, you should be paying it. I don't know how any other way they can afford us. But but let's just set that one aside. As far as safety equipment on the car goes, I think police should be able to pull you over for missing taillights, missing headlights, mismatched paint on a fender. Of course not. That seems ludicrous on its face. But there are safety concerns. I think with that, and I don't know why you wouldn't allow an officer to pull someone over for that. What we're talking about here is the deeper issue uh, in a lot of these situations is is training. And you've written a lot about this, and you've written a story that's actually fairly uh, – Patrick, a story that's fairly instrumental in, in the academies looking at red flags from officers about when they come through training and maybe certain aggro behavior that is not going to bode well with, when someone's an officer. And I think the deeper, much deeper underpinning here is police training as opposed to the the – I'm guessing few bad cops who use these things as a harassment tool and the idea that they can't now stop somebody who has missing safety equipment that endangers their own passengers as well as other people on the road. I mean, I think I would agree just in the fact that whether it's a few or more, taking away that particular tool that is being misused in this way would likely just lead to other things becoming tools that are used for the same end rather than eradicating the outcome, which is the over-policing in this, in this case. So, you know, I certainly agree with the larger point that they were misused in that, in that individual's case. I just would worry that there would be other avenues to get to the same place. 
And it almost seems like an end around is built into it as well, in the sense that uh, we all remember a time when uh, seatbelts were a secondary issue, right? You wouldn't be pulled over for it, but you'd be cited for it if you weren't using it safely. And, you know, if you got pulled over, we don't really know if that cop pulled you over because he saw there was no seatbelt or because he maybe thought that you were swerving a little bit. You know, it still is one of those mushy areas. So this one's a little squishy in my mind. I, I seem I to share so yeah. Well, Patrick, you brought up Manny Ellis in Tacoma. The city of Memphis just released the footage of police officers killing a man who we don't see fighting back in the video. And before that video even came out, several of those officers had been charged with murder and fired. And you contrasted those actions with the actions of Tacoma police. Will you explain that? Right. I think, you know, this is a question I've been hearing from readers who followed the Manuel Ellis case. Why is Tacoma unlike Memphis when it comes to quickly firing police officers? Why didn't Tacoma fire the three officers who are now charged with Manuel Ellis's death? And I think, uh, for one thing, there are some differences between the two cases. Um, the videos were very different, and the timing of their release was very different. You know, yeah, very the different. Ellis video, there was a three-month lag, and so there wasn't, you know, the community didn't have this moment-to-moment-to-moment catharsis. Um, the other thing is, perhaps the police chiefs, in Tacoma, and I say chiefs because we're now on the second one since Ellis was killed, who has refused to fire these officers. Maybe those chiefs don't believe that the evidence is as strong against these three officers as what we saw in Memphis. But really, at its core, it boils down to the fact that Memphis had the political will to fire these officers, and Tacoma has not. Um, after Ellis's family filed a lawsuit, the Tacoma mayor came out on TV saying, fire these men prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Well, she has, you know, basically shriveled since then. When the moment that that family filed a lawsuit, we have not heard anything from the city of Tacoma about employment accountability for these officers separate of the criminal case. In fact, Tacoma has said that it is not even going to investigate whether these officers violated policy that would be, you know, warrant firing until their uh, criminal case has been adjudicated. And uh, I just did a little math last night, so everybody stand back if you smell smoke. Uh, These three officers, and there were two others that were on leave for a year as well, and I'm not even calculating those, but Tacoma has spent $893,908.75 at least in pay on these officers since Ellis's death. And I think that's hard to justify to a community. You know, this mayor was the mayor of a city where he was a resident. And these police chiefs at this point just have said, we're not even going to bother to look at whether we should fire these men until the courts have had their say. And so that's the real difference. It's political will. I think I would also just wonder what we're going to see in the future in Memphis with the questioning of how they got to this point and why this unit felt able to to perform this action, not just the firing. I mean, I, I hope to see that accountability continue further beyond just the firing of those officers, because the question, of course, is this didn't come out of nowhere. Um, so I, I agree what you're saying that, you know, it is a difference with Tacoma, but I think we'll continue to see where that, that story goes. I, I agree that from a video standpoint, audio standpoint, there's a difference between Memphis and Tacoma. I think your points are, are well taken, Patrick, but, but the thing that strikes me about this particular instance, if you look at – and I don't know who out there has, has refused to watch the Memphis video. If you have, you have good reason to refuse to watch I it. I keep it passing is, it up. I don't – It is – uh, it, it will change it, – it, it is so shockingly bad. I didn't think I could be – I thought I was immune to, the, to that level of response seeing these videos because we've all seen so many of them from Rodney King forward. But that one is, is, is horrific. It is shocking and it's very depressing. The, but the Tacoma one, I've seen some of the Tacoma, and you obviously you, you've seen many more than I have. It didn't have that same level of clarity about what was happening. I would say first off, and I would say, and I think that the speed that it was released is incredibly important here because this was right in the middle of everything, and I think that the city of Memphis realized this was going to go very poorly if they didn't get that out. And weirdly enough, look what happened in the city once you released it. It was not necessarily that anyone in town was happy about it, but look at how that developed a level of trust, at least in city administrators, that they're going to at least put the information out there and perhaps do the right thing. In Tacoma, it's been a very different situation. I think the delays and the 
uh, the way the city has re- initially responded and then sort of, like you said, gone to radio silence uh, is telling. Do you think that if another incident happened in Tacoma right now, the uh, the response would be more similar to Memphis or do you think it would be exactly the same? Uh, I think it depends. You know, there actually have been deaths in Tacoma and we haven't really examined them the way that we did the Ellis case per se. Uh, what leads me to my position on this is an email that we obtained and it was from Donald Ramsdale and he was the chief of police at the time Ellis was killed. Mayor Woodards went out and said what she said about, I want these people fired. I want them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And so naturally we wanted to see what was being said inside the right. cop shop at that moment. We requested the emails from Ramsdell to, you know, department wide. And the morning after she said that he made it very clear to his officers that the mayor doesn't have any authority over you. Only I can fire you. And you guys are, you guys are going to be okay here. You know, so what we saw was a chief saying, I have the authority to make a difference here. And, you know, are these three officers that important to this department that they would risk trust with the whole community? And frankly, you know, now Tacoma is it's a comparable, right? They've got Memphis to compare it to. And every day that they don't tell us why they're not investigating these guys or why they continue to be employed, they they haven't shown the level of transparency that Memphis has. And what Memphis is doing might be in response to this nation's reaction in the summer of 2020. I got a question for you also then. So in Memphis, and I don't know. We're going to have to make this short because I want I have an eye on the clock. So okay, go ahead. Fair enough. I'll make it a super fast question. In Memphis, there has been a long history of the community being unhappy with, the, with police there. Uh, that goes back more than a decade. Would you say that that had a factor in how quick the city responded as opposed to Tacoma? Or does Tacoma have that same level of frustration with its local police force? I actually read a story just this morning uh, where activist pastor says this is the result of the hard work that activists have been putting in for decades in Memphis go, right. to demand accountability. Right. So this might be the end of the road for Tacoma that we see in decades. So what? finally, what happens next in Tacoma? Listeners might want to know what to follow it. Officers face trial now scheduled for September unless it's delayed again. September. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll follow that. And, and Memphis on uh, Week in Review. It's KUOW's Week in Review. We've got to take a short break and come back and uh, cover a little more of the week and then find something to smile about as one does. Stay tuned. It's 1249. Stay with us after Week in Review for BBC NewsHour, which begins at 1 p.m. KUOW's Week in Review is Seattle Mets Allison Williams, Seattle Times Patrick Malone, and GeekWire's Mike Lewis. I'm Bill Radke. Earlier in the show, we talked about the pride the Seattle region has felt in its Boeing jetliners. Another point of pride in more recent years has been the ranking of the University of Washington School of Medicine among the country's top schools, according to U.S. News and World Report. But the school has pulled out of that ranking process. Allison, why is that? Well, uh, the U.S. News and World Report rankings, if, you know, we might remember from when we were applying for colleges, are just a listing of using a bunch of different metrics from graduation rates um, to, like, gosh, I want to say, like, job placements in some ca- cases for for different institutions. Uh, you know, the it was a bit of a black box for a while, I think, and people just took it on faith that this was the best colleges that they were being presented to. There was... I think some questioning in recent years of what metrics were being used and how it favored certain kinds of institutions over others and not looking at things like success um, of the graduates in, in the job in the in the job field. So I just thought it was really interesting that the University of Washington School of Medicine and School of Law decided to opt out like a lot of a lot of other large institutions because by being at the top of the list, I think University of Washington's number one and number seven in the medical rankings and number 30 something in the law rankings, very prestigious institutions are opting out and trying to get a little more nuanced than these straightforward rankings, which is really starting to hurt the U.S. News and World Report uh, list, which for years was the quintessential listing of institutions. They're going to be fine. These are top schools. You have lower ranking institutions that were maybe chasing some of these rankings because then they could get attract students. Both the University of Washington School of Medicine and School of Law does not really have a trouble attracting students. So they're able to do this without it really affecting them. Yeah, the uh, the law schools had pulled out earlier. 
Um, does this hurt students who paid for a prestigious degree and it's I mean, less I think so? Students that are at the University of Washington School of Law or Medicine, I think, are doing pretty well. Uh-huh. I mean, I think over the, we've heard a lot about, especially law schools on much lower tiers than the University of Washington, um, not fully preparing their students for a job in law, leaving them with a lot of debt, not having the kind of education that leads to a, a, a decent career. Again, not an issue for University of Washington, but uh, by opting out of these rankings, I think they're they're not giving credence to a system that might bring students to those questionable institutions. The U.S. news rankings have been garbage for years, and everyone in academia knows it. The the schools have admitted. Good Claremont McKenna admitted that it was inflating students' class rankings and scores to get higher on the list because there's a strong financial incentive by U.S. News. It's its most popular by far. It's essentially its swimsuit edition, right? It's, yes. it's, it's most popular feature by far. I wouldn't know U.S. News and World Report still existed if it weren't for this ranking. Precisely. and But it's also lucrative for schools. So they game the system as well. This thing hasn't been... I remember one year they gave the top journalism school ranking for a school that literally didn't have a journalism degree. And so this has been a flawed system for a long time. I love to see... I mean, Yale sort of started it with backing out of, of its place in the rankings, the UW doing it. I applaud them because there is a financial component, I suppose, although the UW school you know, as, as you correctly pointed out, or you know, you're in the UW Law School, you're doing you're doing just fine, right? I am thrilled, and I would love to see more schools pull out, and I'd love to see them stop this ridiculous ranking system once and for all. So, it sounds like you would say that's something that made you smile this week. Yeah, actually, yeah. I would say that I would. This is uh, we've got what five little about five minutes left in the show. We always want to leave listeners with something that uh, lifted us up this week. I I will um, contribute that – does anyone remember – if you've been here a while, you would remember the punk riot girl band Bikini Kill out of Olympia, mm-hmm. Nodding Heads. My 10-year-old's favorite. Oh, yeah. Okay. A so, cool 10-year-old. Yeah, it's a cool 10-year-old. They broke up in the late 90s, and the lead singer, Kathleen Hanna, went to New York City where she used Metro cards, and she didn't like the mayor. Yeah, that's some good lo-fi, my Metro card. So now it's a quarter century later, and we're at a Kraken game this week where they have a live band. Have you seen the live band plays mm-hmm. at, uh, at the Climate Pledge Arena, which I love? The, this band was called Who Is She? And they paid a little tribute to my Metro card and Giuliani being a jerk with their version, my Orca card, where, in which Jeffrey Bezos is being a jerk. <laughs> Card so Jeffrey Bezos shut down all the bookstores. Well, you know that Climate Pledge Arena is named for Amazon. Amazon has the rights. The Kraken are part owned by Amazon CEO. How dare you? The team canceled the band's gig at the arena and implied that the band members were drunk, which they denied. And it made me smile not because I think Jeff Bezos is a jerk or because it's nice to insult your hosts, but I do like to see a little punk attitude still. <laughs> In Seattle, although I know real punks wouldn't have be wouldn't be playing Kraken games, uh, and I like to see the Kraken playing their role of the humorless corporation that doesn't understand that lyrics are not literal. Johnny Cash did not shoot a man in Reno to watch him die. It's a story. It's a cool atmosphere that the team was paying for to make them look cool, and they're not cool, and that's their corporate job. So everyone played their roles this week. Good job, it, everyone. Yeah, I, I, it was it was a funny one that they got. I, I mean, uh, I think of course they got pushed away for using that that line. But wow, it's so insignificant. I'm surprised that they even were listening enough to catch it and and react poorly. Yes, they were paying a lot of attention, apparently. And how many people heard about it because they were asked to leave? <laughs> yeah, right. I think this band just went way up on the U.S. News and World <laughs> Report <laughs> rankings of of alternative bands. And how exciting is it that this? Virtually no name band 
was able to get under the skin of them this way. I mean, yeah. just to me, the old punk in me says, that's pretty cool. That's it. That's it. Anybody else smile at anything this week? You know, I, I something that made me smile, like I'm still using Twitter. I don't often find things I really enjoy on there. But there was a whole thread about uh, NPR listeners who say that they say the name of the host along with them when they at the top of the news hour when they say, I'm Jack Spear, or I'm Lakshmi Singh. Yeah. And I do that, too, in the car. And I love to... The hundreds and hundreds of people responding and saying, I do that too. I love that now when I'm doing that alone in my car, I'm doing it in chorus with people across the country yes. as as the NPR news hosts say their names. You're commuting. Well, maybe like me have- I, everyone says Bernard Wallet at the same time, and we might not have known it, and now we do. What made me happy this week actually was the Beth thing that we talked about earlier. I, it, you this see, ca- so- Beth's Cafe. Yes, the, the non legendary nor iconic <laughs> uh, Beth's Cafe. It's just so rare that you that you see one of these places. It's been around for a for a fairly lengthy period of time. Yeah. You expect things to close at some point. You're disappointed when they do, especially if it's a place you've gone to. Rarely do you see them reopen, and it and having been past the what was Beth's and now going to be Beth's again many many times in in the interim. It's nice to see something make a comeback. I hope that the new owners make a go of it, and I hope that. You know, you if you're going to go there for the 12-egg omelet, you bring your defibrillator. <laughs> but you know it's not late night anymore, at least not for now. That's which, which sort of takes away. Somebody else uh, sent me a text saying, now bring back the hurricane. And everyone who grew up in Seattle knows about yes. the Hurricane Cafe. Yep. That is an excellent point, and it makes me feel like, all right, well, that's not quite what Beth – Beth was known for the late night, the coloring on the walls, yeah. all of that sort of stuff. I think it's going to be a very different, probably more sanitized Beth's. <laughs> And they're using QR codes. <laughs> using QR codes, right. <laughs> but welcome back anyway. I'm happy. Yes, I've got fond memories of Beth's. Anything else? You know, I'm smiling to see you all in 3D. It's yeah. just wonderful to see life resuming a little bit more as normal, more Absolutely. people in the office. And there's an energy about it, an energy that I personally had forgotten that uh, it's coming back because you're in 3D. And I just love to see you guys. Yeah, feel, thank you. Thank you. I feel the same way. I hope we sound better, too, than when we're over a laptop. That's It's time for us to go. That's Patrick Malone in 3D, Seattle Times senior investigative reporter. Allison Williams here in, in person, Seattle Met Magazine deputy editor. I know the beanie that she's wearing. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis in the flesh. Uh, thank you for all be, be on, being on our show this week. Happy to. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Week in Review is produced by The Real Kevin Kniestead. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu, three-dimensional humans. And when, when he runs the board, we all simultaneously thank Bernard Wallet. And thank you for listening. See you next week. I'm Bill Radke. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.